thought we would begin, although it's in uh, some of your background material and some of the audience might be familiar, but uh, a bit of a biographical uh, point, autobiographical in your case. Uh, you have a background in the law and in uh, real estate development. And uh, it's not particularly obvious that someone with that background would become so immersed and become such a leader, state and national leader, in complex technical field like stem cell research. We know it's related to some of your family experiences. Could you tell the audience a little bit about what led you from your original training and background into this field? Certainly, Michael. <laughs> First of all, it's a privilege uh, to be here. There's a number of people in this audience that uh, worked on the campaign, like uh, Dr. Raymond Barglow and uh, a number of individuals in the audience who have been uh, phenomenal supporters. Uh, at the top of uh, uh, that list uh, is certainly the Richard Goldman and Richard Goldman's family, which was a supporter of the campaign uh, and a great leader in the state in funding innovative ideas in, in the healthcare area. So those, it's, it's those examples that lead us to believe that a great deal can be accomplished. On a personal basis, <clears throat> I first became involved in, in 2001, about a week after 9-11, uh, when I found that uh, my youngest son had uh, juvenile diabetes. And on a historical basis, we had gone a year before to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation banquet to support another family who had a child, not knowing that we would be uh, part of this organization a year later for very different reasons. Mm. So my son was uh, well aware of the complications of juvenile diabetes. He understood the great potential for blindness. Um, he understood that 42% uh, of all the kidney loss in this country under Medicare and didn't understand Medicare, but he understood that there's a very high potential for kidney loss. He understood as well that you can end your life with amputations, multiple amputations. So at 11 years old, it's a, you know, it's a horrific uh, concept. As a father, if you hear your son scream with recognition of what he's facing, uh, there are little, there's little you can do other than dedicate yourself to the medical advances that will mitigate, hopefully, and possibly, but without any guarantees, eventually cure this disease and many other chronic diseases. And on top of that uh, obligation as a father, I'm the son of a mother who's dying with Alzheimer's, lost her identity, doesn't know who we are as a family. Uh, if you combine those challenges in your life and look at what can be accomplished, uh, <clears throat> you gain an extreme drive to address the potential. And the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation initially uh, asked me, because I had previous government experience uh, from an internship early in my life in Washington, D.C., and from uh, writing the California Housing Finance Agency statute for California to create an affordable housing program in California, uh, which has now done $20 billion in bonds, 
uh, has received every award for quality in the nation. Uh, you, you pick up a faith in government and an experience in government, and the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation looked at that experience and said, will you help us in Washington because we need supplemental appropriations uh, for the research that is very promising to at least mitigate this horrible disease. So late in 2001, early in 2002, I became one of the lead negotiators in the US Senate for a billion and a half dollars to, <clears throat> to treat and to address the scientific potentials in mitigating juvenile diabetes and, and type two diabetes. Uh, the type 2 diabetes money, half of the total money, was principally directed at Native Americans where there's an epidemic, where 50% of these tribes, 50% mm. uh, have crippling diabetes late in their lives, over 50 years old, and it's a 50% statistic, which is incredible. They were about to lose not only their research money, but their money for any clinics. Uh, so. As the principal negotiator on the Senate side, <coughs> the Iraq war came on and we saw all the committees in the House and Senate closed down. Five of our bills got thrown out. Uh, and in the 10-day rump session after the election, we had to get this appropriation through because we knew that things would be shut down by the Iraq war and the administration sweeping all of the funds nationally into the war and not into additional medical research. And I was able in that 10 days to see the potential for patient advocacy and to realize what we could really accomplish because uh, we had to get every vote in the U.S. House of Representatives. If, you're, if you can't go through a committee, the only way you can get a bill through is by unanimous consent. So <clears throat> the short story is we got unanimous consent in the House of Representatives uh, in significant part because it was the first day in office, the day we hit the floor for Nancy Pelosi as the minority leader in the House. Uh, and she was dedicated instantly to the goal, understood it, and moved the bill uh, with the cooperation in the House of the Speaker, who has had a staff member for years in the Illinois legislature who had diabetes. He understood both the horror of the disease and the potential research. But in the Senate of the United States, it's uh, a very diverse group of individuals without a history of really working together uh, on a unanimous basis. Uh, little did I know that in the history of the country, there'd never been a health care bill passed uh, by unanimous consent of both houses. If I'd known that, probably we wouldn't have dedicated ourselves to that goal, but with the help of Senator Reid, uh, who's now <clears throat> the minority leader, who is then the, uh, the uh, majority uh, uh, leader of the Senate, and with the help of Senator Baucus uh, and a number of other uh, formidable senators in the United States Senator, including Senator Feinstein, we were able on the last day to get three hours before the end of the session unanimous consent of the US Senate. Now we got that unanimous consent over the objections of one of the most powerful senators in the Senate who was uh, a senator 
from Oklahoma. And this senator vowed we'd never get through him and he was going to become the Republican House budget chair and he was going to stop everything. There would be no bill approved for any research of any kind because the priority was the war. Uh, well, in the last four hours his office was open that day, uh, his office in Oklahoma was shut down by calls from every business leader in the state of Oklahoma from every major industry, from a business leader from every major industry, from community groups throughout the state. It was all patient advocacy at the field level. And the Washington DC office was shut down by the same kind of patient advocacy outreach. So three hours before the end of the session, he stood aside. The bottom line is that as a father and as a son, I knew what I needed to dedicate myself to and through this experience of passing this billion and a half dollar bill, I realized that if we mobilize patient advocacy, not for one disease, but for 70 different areas of disease, we could create a force in this country that could focus on the health care of this nation as its principal asset. Its people are the fundamental core of this nation, and health care should be one of our number one priorities. Uh, and with patient advocacy, I believe that's possible. With that belief in, in place, I realized that passing a billion and a half was going to help mitigate these diseases, but it wouldn't cure the disease, and it wouldn't give us the breakthroughs we need. Embryonic stem cell research, coupled with adult stem cell research, had that unique potential, which is why I then moved to focus sequentially on stem cell research. It's an, it's an amazing and moving story. We'll, we'll come back to aspects of it in a minute, but just, for, just briefly, I think there are some uh, world-class researchers and experts on this subject in the audience, but most of us don't have that detailed knowledge. We know that stem cell research is cutting edge. It's uh, in the vanguard and the related to the bio-nano-info revolution in this country. We know it has potential to cure or assist in the curing of dreaded diseases like diabetes and Alzheimer's. Can you give us a short, uh, plain language summary, Cliff Notes summary, if you will? What is it we're really talking about? What are stem cells? Right. Do we all have them? Can you buy them in the street corner? Uh, what kind of research are we talking about here? Yeah. The, the great news is we all have them. Uh, the problem is that we have adult stem cells. Uh, let me break it down into two parts. <clears throat> uh, embryonic stem cell is a pluripotent stem cell. By definition, what that means is that it can divide and self-renew into sister cells that are identical in almost unlimited uh, quantity. Secondly, it can divide into every type of cell tissue in the body. The difference for an adult stem cell is that it has very, it can divide and replicate for a limited number of passages, but it can generally, generally speaking with our today's knowledge, only replicate certain tissues that it's related to in the body system. So an adult stem cell uh, that relates to uh, mesenchymal stem cells, for example, that, that uh, are 
relate to the formation of cartilage and bone. Uh, <clears throat> blood system, stem cells can replicate the blood system uh, and the immune system, uh, but they cannot replicate all parts of the body that an embryonic stem cell can. And a fundamental concept to realize is that there are those who say, you know, on a religious basis, we should respect the opinion of people who have strenuous religious objections, which we definitely respect, but we should respect them in a way that we don't use embryonic stem cell research because everything can be done with adult stem cells. Now, Catherine Verfei, who's a scientist, used to be at the University of Minnesota, is now in Belgium, uh, who is one of the, the lead scientists that was on the stem, site, uh, the stem cell site of the opposition. I talked to in Singapore a couple of years ago. Uh, her position was, I may be the leading person in the country on adult stem cells, but the claims of my supporters are wrong. You can't use an adult stem cell to make every kind of cell in the body. And I have very great difficulty replicating the, the creation of these other kinds of cells with an adult cell. It just doesn't have the plasticity of an embryonic cell. <clears throat> Additionally, we should realize that there are some tremendous therapies with adult stem cells. Stage four leukemia and uh, multiple myeloma, bone cancer, they went from 6% survival rates to almost 80% survival rates with adult stem cell therapies. But only for people where you could get almost, uh, you get a very close uh, match of the immune system. So we have these treatments in place to treat these chronic diseases like leukemia and, and multiple myeloma with adult stem cells, but if you don't have a good enough immune system match, the body rejects these cell therapies, you get host versus graft disease and can die from it. So for the other 50% of the people from whom the bone marrow banks and the other sources of matches don't have a match, with embryonic stem cells, if we can create an adult stem cell without a fully developed immune system, where there's tolerance of the body for uh, this new adult stem cell developed with an embryonic cell, uh, we have the potential to apply known cures across a number of diseases where we have an existing approach, including as of this last week with Dr. Richard Burt from Northwestern's publication, Lupus, where he has 50% uh, of his trial, clinical trial patients had full remission for three to five years of lupus. I mean, some tremendous breakthroughs are are uh, right on the edge of the scientific field. Now, we know that there has been a very vigorous debate about the funding for stem cell research. The president has, uh, has sought to prohibit federal funding. There are people on the other side of this issue. Uh, are they all on the, so on, in, on the opposition because of primarily religious belief or are there other components to the opposition based on scientific judgment or trade-offs with other areas of research? Can, can you sort of break down, disaggregate for us the sources of opposition to what it is you're trying to do? Uh, certainly. <clears throat> the core of the opposition is a religious opposition. If you look with very detailed polling, you find about 17% 
of the opposition are of very strong religious beliefs, which we deeply respect, uh, and they are effectively immovable. 83% of the public can reach in some form, and of those, it's about 75% of the American public at this point which is supportive of the full range of, uh, of stem cell research. Uh, there's different gradients of support among that 75%. But uh, the president's position to accommodate the uh, religious views of some has been that you cannot use any uh, embryonic stem cells for research unless they were in existence on August 9, 2001, which happens to be the date he made the announcement. There's supposed to be 70 stem cell lines we could use around the country for research. In fact, there's 22, and of the 22, only about 12 actually efficiently reproduce, and 100% of them are polluted with uh, a, a mouse, uh, mouse cells on which they were cultured. And the characteristics of those mouse cells are such that over time, uh, it changes the chromosomal balance of the human cells, which means it's not appropriate for clinical trials. So the nation is frozen and paralyzed with cell lines that we'll never be able to use for FDA trials, uh, but we can use for very limited uh, research. To give you a sense of, of where the country is, in 2004 there was 24 million total spent embryonic stem cell by the National Institutes of Health for the country. We're trying to break out of this litigation here in the near future with a $50 million bridge financing. As an initial increment of our financing is 200% of the entire amounts being spent in the nation. Uh, and this is just a bridge to get us past the litigation where we can get to $250, $300 million a year. So the nation is paralyzed over this religious divide Excuse me, and the religious basis of the opposition is that doing the kind of research you're talking about with stem cells, that, that the stem cells themselves are living organisms, and therefore you're, it's related to the abortion issue, you're killing it's directly living related. organisms, and it's, therefore that's yes. prohibited because you're killing It's directly life. related to the abortion issue. Uh, their interpretation is, is once you have fertilized an egg cell, the fact that it's microscopic, the fact that it's in an in vitro fertilization clinic in a petri dish in a freezer, right. and it's going to be thrown away once the family decides they have all the children they want, is irrelevant. Their position is that that is a human being in that petri dish. Right. Microscopic, but a human being. And <clears throat> they feel that it is against God's will to interfere or, or otherwise interface well, scientifically or medically uh, with this human being. The, f the fact that two-thirds of all fertilized eggs pass through a woman's body without implanting in the womb, in the natural process, they feel is part of God's will. And <clears throat> uh, so they have a belief that creation of a human being believes it it begins at fertilization. And that's their fundamental core of their belief. Uh, turning for a second back to the California experience, you, you led 
the effort for the support of Proposition 71, the California Stem Cell Research and Cures Initiative. It was approved in November 2004 by the voters. As you know, many California voters are getting sort of propositioned out. Right. Uh, not easy to get propositions passed. The governor learned that this past uh, election time where all of them were defeated. What are some of the core lessons you learned really on the political front lines trying to get this proposition passed? Well, <clears throat> I think um, one of the lessons I learned is thank God I'm in California. <laughs> um, if you look politically uh, at California and its expertise in this area, you find that 50% of all the biotech research capacity in this country is in California. And California, considered as a nation, has more capacity than any other nation in the world other than the United States. Now, so when you're trying to figure out politically in the United States how you create a coalition of states to back this, it's very difficult. In fact, if you look at North America, you find that after California, you go to the next state with the greatest capacity is Massachusetts. And then you go to two Canadian provinces, Ontario and Quebec, before you get to another state. Now, that doesn't really lend itself to creating a political coalition across the country to pass new federal legislation. On the one hand, California has a tremendously powerful House delegation uh, because of our population. On the other hand, we only have two senators. Great senators, but only two. So uh, it's very important to realize that if we're going to provide stability to this field, on a political, pragmatic basis, it's going to be California. Additionally, when you look back uh, politically at the, at the House of Representatives just two years ago, or now 2002-2003, uh, we saw that there was the Weldon Bill, which passed the House, which criminalized stem cell research, therapeutic stem cell research with embryonic cells. And it further said that if I took my son or you took your spouse to Canada for treatment and you brought him back into this country, you would have participated in that treatment so you would have been arrested at the border. Uh, it said <clears throat> that a doctor or scientist participating in that would be fined a million dollars and arrested imprisoned, and it had an importation clause that said that you can't import the cells, the therapy, alone or in any body, which means I couldn't bring my child back in the country or your parent. It was an unbelievable departure from the history of this country. So it shows you um, that, A, we've come a long ways, and the House just passed a bill against the, th the threat of the President's veto. Uh, but it shows you that it's a very volatile environment. But two years earlier, they could pass this criminalization bill. And politically, you realize if you've got, an uns you've got the lack of a natural constituency developed in the country because most of the expertise is in California, uh, it tells you that we had to have this initiative pass here. We had to lead if it was going to happen anywhere. Uh, and you also know, you find that 
the patient advocacy community in California is highly developed. In the last 10 days before the election, there were 3 million affinity emails. It's a tremendous amount of affinity emails. Affinity email is an email between people of, uh, of a like group where there's strong uh, ties because of interdependence. And when, when you're in a cancer support group or an MS support group, right or a juvenile diabetes support group, you depend on the veracity of those messages for the life of someone you love. When you get an affinity group email from one of those patient advocacy groups, you know that the people have done their due diligence and are committed to what they're sending to you. So you have an extraordinary base in this state. You have six million people in California who every year are active participants in patient advocacy groups. Uh, either they go to galas, they go to walks, they give money. That's a huge base. So you have the expertise in the state, you have a natural political constituency that cares deeply, uh, and you're the only state in the country that can effectively create a substitute national policy. What we learned is that we had the ability here to communicate on an extraordinarily complex subject that normally would not hold voter attention because we had a constituency that was incredibly at risk that had it in its personal and family interest to help educate the state along with uh, the formal campaign program. But just, just following up on that a second, is it plausible since, I mean, these dreaded diseases are not just the province of California or Massachusetts or Ontario. Right. I don't know if they're uniformly distributed, but they're in Kansas and Texas and Alabama. So you're saying to some degree a key to it is the patient advocacy mechanism. If there were patient advocacy groups and these kind of reinforcing email networks, even in states where there isn't the kind of expertise that you have in California, that could change the political climate toward the receptivity for stem cell research? Is that a fair conclusion? It, it is a fair conclusion, and it is a conclusion that shows you this change in the polls. I mean, for seven, it's almost 70% of the nation that is now supportive of stem cell research, uh, principally educated through patient advocacy groups across the country. And with California setting the example, uh, I was frankly surprised, because I was so focused on California, that New York is trying to work on a billion dollars. Illinois is trying to work on a billion. New Jersey is working on 390 million. Maryland's working on 100 million. Uh, in New Jersey, New York, and Illinois, each of them is hung up in one or the other house of their state government over a handful of votes. And the ideological fringe groups have taken the position in those states, don't vote principle. Don't vote for stem cell research to follow California because we'll tie you up in court just like California. So don't waste your vote on something that will make you pay for in your district and will not accomplish the results. Another reason it is so critical for us to break out of this litigation with immediate funding that we're putting together to show the other states that ideological fringe groups cannot uh, shut down every democratically mandated scientific and medical program in this country that they disagree with. Right. Just by a court strategy to tie it up in court, not to win. Well, let, let's bring uh, 
the conversation up to date then with what's happened since the passage of the proposition in 2004. In early uh, 2005, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine was established, and that's their job is to make grants and provide loans for stem cell research and related activities. You also have a 29-member independent citizens oversight committee that serves as a governing board for this institute. So you've got the CIRM and the ICOC. Can you give us a kind of a year plus progress report sure. or lack thereof? You know, where are we with the center and where are we with the oversight committee? Well, Dr. Bergenau, your chancellor is in fact a distinguished member of that board. Uh, the board for this institute has, in addition, uh, the president of Caltech himself, David Baltimore, a Nobel Prize winner, president of Salk Institute, president of Burnham Institute, um, the head of neurosurgery for uh, Cedar sinai the president of City of Hope. It has seven medical school deans, all the UC medical school deans, plus Stanford's and USC's, uh, distinguished group of scientific and medical expertise, and it has uh, 10 patient advocates from 10 different disease areas. Now realize that all these patient advocates understand that the nature of basic and applied research is that I know as a patient advocate that you may be working on a diabetes research project and benefit cancer. Two years ago, there was a tremendous amount of money put into pancreatic cancer. There's a tremendous result, not for pancreatic cancer, but for juvenile diabetes. The, the, the current drug for MS mm -hmm. was designed as a cancer drug, didn't work as a cancer drug, the company almost went under, and is now being used as an MS drug. You mean half the time you, you are going to realize tremendous that the tremendous results really are for a target other than what you design them for. So you have to look at this, if you're a patient advocate on a board, you're part of a community of, of families and patients that are suffering from chronic disease, and you have to commit yourself to the progress of medical science generally, because your individual disease may not be the beneficiary. So you have this oversight board that also includes four members from biotech companies with members chosen for their expertise in developing vaccines or therapies, who, and they cannot have any interest at all, zero interest in any stem cell com company. This board sits over the functioning staff of the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, staff limited to 50 people. No more than 6% of the funds can go to overhead to make sure that 94 cents on every dollar goes to research. <clears throat> uh, and what we've done in the last year uh, is we've created an entire system of con conflicts of interest regulation for the board, for the staff, for the working group scientists, uh, cutting entirely new ground in the entire country. Uh, there is no other group which on its peer review system, the scientists and, and physicians who review the grants coming in, eliminates anyone from that who could ever benefit personally from the, from the grant that's approved. So all of our scientists and all of our physicians on our peer review are from out of state to create an iron wall for uh, avoiding conflicts of interest. Secondly, in medical and ethical standards, we work with the National Academy of Science, and we've created, as we're the only state in the country that has adopted the model medical and ethical standards proposed by the National Academy of Science, by the best minds in the country. 
next, we've created not only a peer review system with a working group for recommendations to the board, which makes the final decisions. We have a standards working group with some of the finest medical ethicists in the country. In fact, Alta Charo, who's on that, was one of the advisors to the National Academy on developing the national ethics standards. Uh, <clears throat> our, our ethics standards go beyond the history of the country and the world in that we prohibit compensation to women donating eggs, so there has to be a motivation uh, that is to advance medical research so that you, there's no ability or motivation to exploit anyone by offering them uh, payment for egg donations. We have a complete agency that we've built in the last year. An agency that fortunately is across the bay from you in San Francisco as a result of a competition where the philanthropist from the city of San Francisco put up $18 million of subsidy over the next 10 years to give us free headquarters so none of the money would be taken away from research for headquarters. They gave us uh, 14,000 uh, free hotel rooms, excuse me, 14,000 heavily discounted hotel rooms and 2,000 free hotel rooms to bring the best and the brightest minds from all over the world together. Uh, and they gave us conference facilities with seven venues from 300 to 50,000 at Moscone Center, available as needed, uh, unless it was otherwise reserved, to bring the best minds from the world together to collaborate on this research. So we have a tremendous mechanism set up, and we have awarded the first round of, of fellowships, 170 fellowships for the state, of which University of California, Berkeley, and Children's Hospital, Oakland, are a joint venture partner. Uh, we are at the brink of funding the first fellowships, which are funds that are desperately needed by the institutions in this state to build intellectual infrastructure that will power uh, this, this forward. But we are currently held up in our funding by opposition uh, from the opposition litigation that's challenging the constitutionality of the initiative based upon opponents that came out of the campaign, the campaign and two law firms that have a history of fighting to oppose a woman's right to choose across the United States and have chosen California as the battleground to stop stem cell research. And when do you think this will be resolved, or is it hard to say? Well, the trial is February 27th. Uh, <clears throat> it'll be about a two-week trial. The opposition will then appeal for about 18 months. We have a fabulous advantage going into this trial, and that is that the woman jurist uh, uh, who is the trial judge was also the law in motion judge. And on November 29th, she wrote an opinion, you know, a law in motion opinion that was 24 pages long when she could have written three, but she wanted to tell the world what her position was, essentially. At least that's our interpretation. And to give you the theme and understand where we are in this litigation, she said it at page nine, which I often quote, because it's so succinct and direct, she says, the Supreme Court has directed this court as its solemn duty to find for the constitutionality of an initiative whenever possible and to resolve all doubts in favor of constitutionality. She then goes on to make it even clearer and said, 
the plaintiffs have to understand that they can't prevail as to unconstitutionality on a hypothetical. She says the unconstitutionality must be present, inevitable, total, and fatal. Now that's a hundred foot wall. Nevertheless, the opposition knew that before they filed the lawsuit. Mm. Their goal is to strangle the program uh, so that they can say to states all over this country, you cannot follow That's California. Right. And to show and prove a legal strategy where you can't win, whether of creating lawsuits to tie up the University of California system or any state in court to strangle programs they ideologically disagree with. Which is why I've put in place a bridge financing program that we're close to funding uh, that will use state bonds that says when you buy these bonds you have to realize if we lose you've just made a contribution to science and medicine but we'll immediately use this money for fellowship programs, for innovation grants, to move the science forward while we're in the litigation, while we're in the appeals. We have no intention of waiting. The board clearly is committed to driving through this litigation and funding as soon as possible uh, up to $50 million as the initial increment to substantively provide a message that we intend to deliver for the people of California. Uh, in recent weeks and months, uh, the area of stem cell research that's grabbed the most headlines is the South Korean case. Let's spend a minute on that. Um, Professor Huang Wu Suk of Seoul National University, which I think is widely regarded as the most prestigious university in the Republic of Korea, uh, admitted that his work was fraudulent. Could you say a word about what he claimed that he had achieved and what he evidently actually did or didn't achieve? Certainly. <clears throat> he claimed that he had uh, effectively Create, created an, a very highly efficient method of, of somatic cell nuclear transfer, which is a therapeutic uh, development of disease-specific stem cell lines uh, for the spinal cord area, uh, juvenile diabetes, and one other area. Would have been a great benefit if he had. Uh, the controversy originally erupted because he had it came out that he had uh, participated with a clinic that had paid for the egg donations uh, with the women being paid being uh, women from his own research staff and there's issue of whether there was coercion or not. Doesn't appear to be uh, any coercion that's known but I'd like to say first of all the, the National Academy standards as enhanced by Proposition 71 prohibits the payment for egg donation. So you cannot have any motivation other than advancing right, right. the research. So that could not have happened under our policies. Uh, secondly, in California under Proposition 71, um, we have a, a very well-developed system of institutional review boards uh, that look at research at institutions uh, and or of what's called an escrow committee which is another type of review board 
uh, <clears throat> I believe it's more advanced uh, than you would find in Korea as a safeguard. But beyond that, you would then have to go past the staff of the institute. Uh, and you would also have the fact that you've got 29 members on the board, half of which are distinguished members of faculty that have right. been very involved in scientific research for decades. So we have several la layers of filter. You'll never have a perfect system. But if you look back at recombinant DNA research, in 1975, there was the Asilomar Conference, much like the task force that put together the National Academy recommendations on medical and ethics, ethical standards we have just adopted. And from 1975 to 2005, 30 years in recombinant DNA, the last major breakthrough area of medical research in this country, we have not had any tragedy in the research field similar to what happened in Korea. So I feel we'll have an effective system in place. Well, what about, though, the consequences of this very celebrated case? I mean, some feel that it might somehow put a damper on research, but actually there have been some articles in the press I was looking at that claim just the reverse. In fact, uh, there was one account that said that they thought it would stimulate stem cell research. The South Korean failure would stimulate stem cell research at Harvard, at UCSF, at UCLA, and elsewhere. Is, is this yeah. correct? Overall, do you think the scandal is harmful, helpful, or largely irrelevant to well, what you're Well, I wish it had never happened. Uh, Seoul National University is a distinguished uh, research institution, but the, this, there's a school of thought that says that uh, thinking that the field had been preempted by the Koreans, uh, some institutions decided not to make it their central focus, there now is a very intense competition going on uh, because they realize that this is an area of research uh, that the, where the breakthrough has not occurred and it will be tremendously valuable to uh, have this information. So there's this renewed competition that you're, uh, you're referring to. Uh, it's clear in animals uh, that they're able to do somatic cell nuclear transfer and the issue is to make that bridge now into human cells uh, <clears throat> and realize again that Proposition 71 prohibits human reproductive cloning. It's absolutely prohibited in this state, both by Proposition 71 and other state statutes. So the somatic cell nuclear transfer they're competing for is only for therapeutic applications. Okay. Um, I'd like to hear, and I think we'd all like to hear your thoughts about where we might be in this whole field if we reconvened in five years. But maybe I'll save that for closer to the end. We have a very large number of questions from the audience, so if you don't mind, I'd like to turn sure. to them. Uh, there's a cluster of questions asking for you to elaborate further on the non-religious opposition sure. to stem cell research. Um, one question says that... Uh, for example, have you met parents with children suffering from juvenile uh, diabetes and other disabilities who nevertheless oppose stem cell research? Um, or is there, are there different views about a, it's not religious-based, but somehow it's related to the notion that this work places one on a slippery slope of manipulating human life 
in ways that could have very deleterious long-term effects. Sure. Could you elaborate on uh, sure. the non-religious elements of the opposition? Um, there are certainly groups, uh, small groups of individuals that are very concerned about human reproductive cloning that <clears throat> at some point they'll even say they're for stem cell research, but they're so afraid of human reproductive cloning that every credible scientist that we know of in the world is opposed to, that they're afraid of allowing this research go, to go forward. Now, <laughs> while I can respect their position, I also respect the democratic mandate of 7 million voters, approximately 60% of the voters in the state, who voted for this research. So that issue was fully debated. And as a reference point, I'll tell you that as I often have said, that we had the same opposition back in 1977. Earlier tonight at a dinner, uh, I recalled the fact that in 1977, the, the last great frontier of medicine, recombinant DNA, uh, <clears throat> was at stake, and there was opposition of exactly the kind you just referenced along the, with religious opposition. The attempt was to shut it down in the House of Representatives in 1977. Uh, instead of shutting it down, they created a mini Marshall Plan. Uh, and therefore, in 1978, uh, the University of California, San Francisco, and the City of Hope were jointly able to announce the creation of artificial human insulin. And as I said earlier, that keeps my son alive and millions of other diabetics alive in the world. And in the following decade, it led to 100 critical heart and cancer drugs that have saved millions of lives and the most recent decade gave us the knowledge to decode the human genome. So certainly there's a balancing act here. In California, we're particularly knowledgeable to, to look at that balancing act because we've seen what happened in the last major pioneering area of medical research. We know the consequences if we'd shut it down. And we know that the scientists have worked with discipline under medical standards and ethical standards that have been followed uh, correctly with institutional oversight, uh, with uh, state oversight for 30 years effectively. We can have a disciplined exercise of science that radically moves medical treatments forward. So on the one hand, we respect these individual groups but disagree. There's another group that opposes stem cell research in Prop 71. Uh, and they claim they are opposing it because of transparency uh, of the Prop 71 structure, and they claim they oppose it uh, because of accountability. And they say that it's not an accountable enough structure. And I would say to you that as Chancellor Bergino referenced, we've had 57 public meetings in the last year. 57. More public meetings informing this agency than in any other agency in the history of the state of California. That's board meetings, subcommittee meetings, working group meetings. They're all public except for the confidential peer review sessions of the scientists and physicians that review the applications and make recommendations to the board and no approval can be made of any grant or loan at the board level except in a public meeting. So it's an extraordinarily complex 
but extraordinarily transparent process. Uh, uh, secondly, in terms of accountability, I would say to you, never before in the history of the state of California has there been a state agency where the, the statute or initiative creating it created at the same time an independent oversight committee. And in this case, it's called the <coughs> California Institute of Regenerative Medicine Citizens Financial Oversight Committee. It has an appointment by the President Pro Tem of the Senate, appointment by the Speaker, appointment by the Controller, appointment by the Treasurer, and I have one appointment. The Controller chairs it. Uh, <coughs> this committee has to hold a public hearing every year on our performance, has to issue a public report every year on our performance. No other agency has that kind of independent oversight in the history of this state. Uh, so we believe that the accountability protections are there in addition to the dedication of the tremendous board representatives that we have. Nothing will ever be perfect, sure. but it's a sound system that has been well reviewed by the, by the patient community, by the scientific community, uh, and even by the chambers of commerce in the state Every Chamber of Commerce from San Diego to San, uh, San Francisco, including the Orange County Business Council, endorsed this, uh, which is a radical departure for something that's a tax, tax measure to advance medical research. Uh, there are some people in the audience, including some students, who would like you to address questions of patent rights and intellectual property rights. Uh, is there a central intellectual property issue here? that is a stumbling block to f the furtherance of this research? And if so, you know, what is it and how do you clarify, how do you resolve this intellectual property problem? Well, I'm privileged to report to you that the chairman of the board committee on intellectual property is the former dean of the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. Uh, Ed Penhote, Penho. who is the vice chairman of our board and chairs that subcommittee, uh, just passed through the Intellectual Property Committee a, a intellectual property regime that even the Sacramento Bee wrote an editorial supporting, a newspaper that has criticized us every week since our creation, despite the fact they would refuse to meet with us to even discuss our ideas during, before the election. So uh, we think see, even our harshest critics believe that we've made substantial progress there, but very specifically, Intellectual property uh, rights can be a real barrier to the advancement of research. And conceptually, one of the things you find in our intellectual property policies we are intending at the board, hopefully, to adopt, subject to the board's discretion this Friday, uh, that I'm referencing, say that any researcher who creates a new discovery uh, of a new stem cell line must put it in a stem cell bank so it's available to other researchers. Any researcher must make it available at their cost, any biological materials they discover, to other researchers. So it's not held back for commercial purposes. It's not held back for strategic scientific purposes. Uh, it uh, requires an, an openness and a requirement to publish the results on a much faster timetable than has been known nationally in the scientific field in order to make certain that the knowledge is disseminated as fast as possible. I mean, 
if you look at the time clock of these critical diseases like ALS, where someone has three years to live after they're diagnosed on the average, it's vital that this information move as quickly uh, as possible. So there's an open sharing architecture here without violating patent rights. And in addition, uh, there's a requirement <clears throat> that the private companies that come in to commercialize these and fund the clinical trials, which are hugely expensive, to get the medicines into the field uh, will be reviewed on the basis of whether Cal California's public funded health programs like uh, uh, Medi-Cal uh, get the, the lowest available price for these drugs and where they have a provision or a program to make these drugs available to the uninsured. So I request that you take a look at the IP policy that will be voted on. It's on our website. Uh, it'll be voted on on Friday. We believe it strikes new ground to remove these intellectual property obstacles to the advancement of science and to accelerate the research for the benefit of the public. Uh, you addressed in some of your response to earlier questions uh, basically uh, safeguards against conflict of interest. But some of the uh, questioners would like you to elaborate a little bit. For example, one questioner says, isn't this the case where the public is paying for the research, but the companies will profit from it? Sure. And that they'll have the patent rights. We're paying for them to make a lot of money. Uh, how do you respond to this uh, allegation? Well, first of all, uh, it's very important to recognize <clears throat> that the basic and applied science is critical. But the goal, eventually, is to get these benefits uh, to the patient. And for translational medicine to be funded, to get the clinical trials funded, which can be extraordinarily expensive, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, sometimes $800 million on a single drug, <clears throat> you have to bring the private sector in at some point. Now, the, the grant program that we've approved thus far is a fellowship program. The board is going to de decide which grant program to go into next, but the intention is it's for nonprofit institutions in the state, where the, the UC system or Salk or the City of Hope, but the nonprofit research institutions. The intellectual property agreements that I've just referred to say that 25% of these intellectual property revenues will end up going back to the state to further Edu education and the science objectives and research of the state. So that's one form of payback. But the real payback to the state is to advance research to reduce human suffering and reduce the cost of chronic disease. Um, we did a, an analysis uh, with a, a Stanford uh, medical school economist. Obviously, it should have been a Berkeley uh, economist. Uh, during the campaign who said that if we were to reduce the cost of chronic of six out of 70 chronic diseases in California uh, by one to two percent, just incremental improvements, they're not curing them, this is getting someone out of the hospital two percent earlier, uh, we would save enough money on California's health care bill, just the public sector of the 
health care bill to create a 236% payback to the public on $3 billion of scientific investment and $3 billion of interest. And that doesn't count the payback in terms of reduced human suffering, which has got to be somewhere at the top of the list or at the very top of the list in my book. So <clears throat> the, we need the capital of the public companies to really get these, uh, these therapies into patients' hands. But we believe that the patients and families with chronic disease and the taxpayers of the state will tr have tremendous benefits the greatest financial benefits being uh, even marginal reductions in healthcare costs to the public sector, which create huge paybacks. You know, Mr. Klein, we established the Rhoda Goldman series eight years ago when we wanted to bring national leaders here who are really working on cutting edge problems and making a difference. And I think, I think our audience would agree we've succeeded tonight. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.